Now we've been here seven days already and we've only got as far as the second jhana, second meditative absorption and the first step of insight. And we've got twelve steps of insight and eight jhanas. How are we ever going to get finished with all that? Well, we'll get to the second step of insight right now. It might be advisable to mention once more that there are many meditation methods, but there are only two directions, and that's calm and insight. And calm can be called tranquility, and insight can be called wisdom. And actually, the Buddha's teaching is divided into three parts. And in Pali, there's sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is moral conduct, samadhi, concentration, and panya is wisdom, or calm and insight. So we have moral conduct, calm and insight, and that's all there is to the whole teaching. And yet, there are, of course, many different facets to all of that. And in order to facilitate our pathway, the Buddha has given very exact descriptions of each step on the path. And although we may think that something is obvious and we don't need to pay attention to it, or do anything with it. The um, insight into it is other than it being obvious. Now the first step into insight I mentioned quite some time ago and I said that it is something that one needs to look at, make sure that one understands it and realizes it namely that mind and body are two. That the body is breathing and the mind is observing. That the body is consisting of four elements and that the mind consists of four components which are not the same as the elements. All these things seem to be obvious and so it is quite common that one just accepts it and says, oh yes, yes, of course, mind and body are two, that's right, and one consists of that and one consists of the other. But that just isn't good enough. We have to actually observe it ourselves and become aware of the fact that that is so. By observing this whole aspect of which we call me, and seeing how it functions. Now the first thing that we can see in the body is that it has to obey the mind. And sometimes it can't. It's too weak, it's not capable. And then our pride is hurt. And other times we also have to become aware of the fact what the mind is actually doing with these four components, how it functions, so that we can get a really good grip on the 
understanding of this person who can be considered to be the laboratory. This is the laboratory that we can use in order to find out absolute truth. When we call this person me, and when this me is having all sorts of pleasant or unpleasant experiences, that's the worldly level. And that doesn't give us any insight. But when we use the analysis and become aware of the fact that there actually is something happening that makes it quite true that the body is the prone passenger and the mind is the boatman who paddles the boat, then we have gained the first step of insight. So we need to look at that. We can use it in walking meditation. Who says we should walk? Is it the body that says walk or is it the mind that says walk? And who's actually doing the walking? So there are two distinct functions happening. And while this is also obvious and so true and can't be argued about, which makes it terribly uninteresting, we still have to become aware of it. Because if we haven't taken the first step into insight, we won't be able to take the second. And the second is just as obvious and just as true and equally unarguable and equally uninteresting because of that. But the second step has another um, quality about it. While it is um, unarguable and obvious, one certain sometimes has a dislike to it. The second step is what we've been, I've been calling over and over again impermanence. And it is noticing the arising and ceasing. Now I have said to you that when you do the jhanas, at the end it is imperative that you look at it and see and say to yourself, that too is impermanent. Now why is that so imperative? Because we have to see arising and ceasing eventually in everything. Now when the mind says, oh I don't like that, that too is impermanent, and I was sort of having quite a nice time with that, then we are on a worldly level. And then we are on the level where we won't find satisfaction. It's impossible. And the minute the mind says that, we must become aware of the fact that the mind has slipped back into seeing everything the way the world sees it. When something nice stops, the world says, oh, what a pity. But when we see something nice stop, we say, that too is impermanent. Now, we don't only say it, we've got to mean it. And that's the whole difference. We can say anything. I mean, we could even go around saying, look at me, I'm enlightened, or something like that. 
but it doesn't matter what we say we've got to know it and mean it now that the jhanas are impermanent puts them straight into the worldly level it's not the dimension where we can leave that worldly level behind but it is the third dimension where we don't need the sense contact nor do we need the logical rational thinking and yet even in that third dimension of the elevated consciousness we are still in the realm of that which needs a condition which is arising and ceasing everything that we have so far experienced in our lives has to have a condition behind it a cause of which we experience the effect and then we have another cause and another effect the dependent arising this body has arisen this mind has arisen there are causes and effects and everything that has this condition behind it has to be impermanent it cannot claim any substance or any permanence because the condition is equally impermanent now when you look at the jhana what is the condition the condition is concentration well is that permanent would be nice if it were wouldn't it but not only is it impermanent in the sense that it's sometimes there and sometimes isn't there's more to impermanence than that and this is something that we now have to be able to recognize that impermanence is embedded in every moment every thought moment every time moment now if you have one of those digital clocks you can see it actually optical you can see it it's constantly moving every moment there's a movement on those digital clocks on those ordinary old ones you don't see that but on those digital ones you can see it's constantly moving so what do you do you look at it and say oh i'm late i've got to go but why don't you look if you have one of those things and see how this constant movement actually shows you quite optically that nothing can stand still it's got to be moving it's very interesting how our modern technology can sometimes help us to see something much more clearly than before that time is constantly moving and constantly changing is something that we may intellectually know quite possible that we are intellectually aware of that but it has to become an inner realization that that what is happening on that digital clock is happening with us too we are no different from that everything is constantly arising and ceasing within us now these words are used so much in the buddhist terminology that most people don't even pay attention to them anymore 
they actually say, yes, of course, everything's arising and ceasing, and then let it go at that. If we don't get into that second step of insight, all the other ten will not be open to us. Of course, all of those twelve lead to total freedom, but at least we need to come so far that we can see the world and ourselves in a different perspective. This different perspective means that the solidity of all this that surrounds us is broken up somewhat. It's not totally lost, but it is not quite as solid anymore as it used to be. When we see ourselves in that way where every thought moment which has come is already gone we can hardly catch it and you can notice that in meditation if you have tried to label sometimes and the thing was gone before you even knew what it was and a new one was already there and the old one was already finished but not only that if you are very mindful, very attentive to the thought moments, one can feel them as electrical impulses. They're constantly coming together and falling apart. Each sensation, each emotion, it comes together and falls apart, just like the whole universe does. Everything is like that. Now, our optical illusion tells us that there's some solidity around us. It looks as if the bodies and the houses and the um, uh, furniture and the cushions and the trees, everything is solid. And because it pleases us to believe that, because it makes it appear as if this me is also solid, so we don't go any further then this optical illusion. And yet, it doesn't give us any real sense of freedom or safety that there are so many solid objects and so many solid people which are utterly divorced from us. Nobody feels safe and happy within that. And yet it pleases us to believe this optical illusion. But in reality, when we watch ourselves quite closely, we will notice, even in the mind or in the body or both, how there's a constant movement. If you are still in meditation and become aware of the body itself, you will notice without any difficulty how there's a constant movement in the body. And I don't mean that you feel the breath moving and I don't mean that you feel the heartbeat. Those are obvious movements. No, it is within this body that there's a constant coming together and falling apart. You don't need to call it that. It is a movement in, out, in, out. And we can see that within, we can feel that within, and we can feel that also within the mind. And then, when we feel that, then we have 
the first inkling what this universe really is it's not solid how could it be it's constant even the whole universe is constantly contracting and expanding and so are we and we all know from our school days most likely that this earth that we seem to be sitting on solidly is constantly moving we've forgotten it of course we may at one stage have wondered why we don't fall off if it keeps on moving all the time and since we couldn't answer that so we forgot about it conveniently that the thing is constantly moving in fact it's moving so fast that it's quite remarkable and not only that everything in the universe sun, moon, stars everything is moving nothing stands still there's not a still point anywhere to be found now because of this constant movement there's constant friction movement generates friction and friction is at least unpleasant but what we can say about friction quite clearly is friction is dukkha and one day we will notice how much dukkha thinking is it's real dukkha not only that it's tiring but it's friction it's constantly coming together and falling apart this optical illusion of the solidity of the me brings and the non-transparency of it brings all the problems with it because this certain person me which is separate from our other me's needs to be protected against all others and it needs to have its certain wishes granted otherwise becomes unhappy and it wants things that it likes to stay the way they are all of these wishes are totally unrealistic they don't have any bearing on the laws of nature if we were to flow with the laws of nature a little more we would see that all of that is absurd there is no such thing as solidity everything is constantly in movement and if it isn't it dies whatever doesn't move dies it's finished and with that actual knowledge that we all have because we learned most of that in school because they tell us that about all these different sciences that they teach us we don't need to use them all we have to do is look at ourselves and become aware of this constant change even optically I always recommend that when you come home from the meditation course to get out an old photo album maybe one that your mother has kept from the time that you were born and maybe were lying on a bare skin rug and then with, a, with your name underneath it and then hold that up against the mirror and then say now which one is me the little one on the bare skin rug or is it the one that's standing in front of the mirror in a pair of jeans or if you don't like the one on the bare skin rug maybe the one that went to school the first day I'm sure there's a photo of that or if you don't like that one well maybe the one that uh, became 21 or the one that was 12 or whatever it is and they're all me every single one is me and then this one is me now which one is me and you don't even have enough photos 
because the in-between time when somebody didn't have a camera ready, there's another thousand leaves. So how many are we? Obviously, there are, we are so many that we can't count. And that's only the body. It's very interesting to do that, do that. Go in front of the mirror and say, look at that, that's me and that's me. Very nice. And then, don't just take that for granted, but deduce something from that. Now, which is the real thing? And you undoubtedly must answer that at this moment, this one is the real one. But before the moment, there was another one that was real. And another ten years from now, if we live that long, there's another one that will be real. So there's only the reality of the moment. Everything else is conjecture, everything else is just optical illusion. And how long is each moment? A moment is just as long as the digital clock is moving. And it's very fast. That's the moment. That's the only reality there is. And when that really clicks, it's very possible that the mind says, I don't like it. I'm going to forget about it. That's not the way I want it. And that's why the jhanas are so important. Because if one sees that after the jhanas, the mind has absolutely no objection. The mind is at ease, the mind is calm, the mind is tranquil. The mind says, oh, that's the way it is, all right. Well, that's the way it is then. But without them, it is very likely, and not likely, but possible, that the mind rejects this out of hand and says, well, that's a very nice idea, but it's not fitting in what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get happy, so I better keep it all solid. Now, obviously, it's not possible to be happy in contradiction to the laws of nature. It just doesn't work. It's never worked for anyone. Nobody's ever been able to do it. So the contradiction which then arises is a rejection of that absolute truth, because that is an absolute truth, and trying to find the inner satisfaction, the inner fulfillment, without accepting absolute reality. It's almost as if we wanted to go in a car and get onto another place and don't have a car. It's absurd. It doesn't work. It can't. So the only thing to do is to really investigate whether this is the truth, whether this one moment is the only one that arises. And if we find that that is the truth, the mind that accepts it will be induced to live in that moment. And if we live in that moment, there's nothing we can reject, because we're not going to reject living. If we are in that one moment only, which is, of course, mindfulness, and the Buddha said and promised that if we did that for seven days, we'd be enlightened. Do we have seven days left? If we were in that moment, then there is no possibility of dislike. Because that one moment can't be disliked. 
It just is. Now, the danger in that is that one moment follows another. Impermanence is hidden through continuity. Because we have memory of having been here yesterday and the day before and the day before, we get the idea that we're permanent. And last year and the year before, we have memories of that. The same it is with living in this one moment. If we allow the memory to arise that we already lived the moment before and the moment before that, again, the whole exercise is futile. It has to be just one moment and nothing else. Now, if we can manage that, first of all, there would be absolutely no impurity, no dislike, no rejection. There would be truth. But it is an almost impossible in endeavor for an ordinary human being to be that mindful that we could live only in this one moment. Therefore, we have to make the inquiry. We have to find out through our own mind and body whether we can find anything that's permanent and unchanging. So this is another one of the inside methods of meditation. One was looking at all the parts of the body. That's one inside method. Another one is to look at the impermanence of the breath, look at the impermanence of the thought, of the sensation, of the movement of the body, and then look for something that's unchanging. When we do that, when we look for something that's unchanging, obviously we won't find it. What we might find is a fantasy, something that we make up, that we hope there's something there that's unchanging. And so we give it some sort of name. But in reality, we can't find anything. So when we can't find anything within us, then when we can also extend that outward, that inquiry, and look at nature around us, can we find something in there that's unchanging? We can go to the trees, to the bushes, to the earth itself, to the grass, wherever we want to look. We can go to the stream, to the creek, anywhere we look, to the weather, to morning, noon and night, stars, moon, sun, everywhere else we can look. And it is a very interesting and worthwhile inquiry. Look, where is something unchanging? And because humanity doesn't like that idea at all that there is nothing unchanging, we've made up all kinds of fantasy stories. What there could be that isn't unchanging, uh, that isn't changing, that's something that we could find that we could hang on to. And it has been made into some sort of belief system. So look whether you can find something that is unchanging. And it is very interesting for oneself 
what one can come up with, if anything. And then examine that, what you come up with. You see whether it's real or whether it's a belief system or whether it's based on something that other people have told you or whether it's something that you're hoping for. It's extremely worthwhile starting with oneself and then going outward. The whole of the existence or everything that exists is connected. Now I've told you that already several times. The connection of everything as it belongs together. And as it belongs together, it also has exactly the same quality. And that belonging together you can find in the elements which are material, material elements which are like our body. So again, check that out. See whether you can find something in there that's unchanging, that remains. And every time the mind says, I don't want any part of this, I don't like it, it's not making me happy, then ask yourself, what is making me happy? What is it that I want? Something that's solid and forever? Or where am I going to find it? One needs to be quite courageous in this inquiry. If one doesn't have the courage to inquire through the last analysis, but shies back from the truth, then one can't step forward on this path. Because every bit of it is quite different, opposed to what the ordinary, everyday kind of mind believes. Since we want to transcend, if we do want to transcend the ordinary way of being, then we have to look at things in an extraordinary way. And the only way we will be able to look at it in an extraordinary way is if we can see it totally different from the way it is usually looked at. And that concerns ourselves and everything around us. The impermanence is not only that everything comes and goes, it's also the fact that everything flows. It doesn't just be there and go and come and go and come. As it does that, within that coming and going, change is already embedded. We never stay the same one moment from one moment to the next. Now that is also a very important discovery. It sounds like nothing. But to discover that we never stay the same from one moment to the next brings with it the urgency of practice. Because if we don't, we can very easily revert back to the level where we see everything the way everybody does. And if we see it differently, we have to keep on seeing it differently. So in that impermanence, change is already embedded, and the change also makes it possible 
to see things from as if we're standing on a balcony or maybe on a small hill and looking down. Nothing is the same two moments in a row. And because we want it to be solid, we're trying to hang on to things, making it the same, we get into trouble. It's mine, so it's supposed to stay the same. It can't. The only thing to do is to open oneself to the flow. And if we open ourselves to the flow, then, of course, we flow with the laws of nature. We flow with them. Everything constantly changing. And that will bring us a kind of feeling of ease, which is so very helpful for the meditation, because we have to flow with the meditation and not have anything to hang on to. Particularly if we have absorption states, if we want to hang on to those, then we have no benefit from them. Then they are only a substitute for sensual pleasure. They are not supposed to be a substitute for sensual pleasure. They are that also, but that's not what they are supposed to be. Because if we try to hang on to them, that's that what they become. And then they have lost their meaning. They are to show us that we can transcend potential pleasure, but even that transcendence is not yet the last word. There is more, because that too is impermanent, and letting go and going beyond impermanence means that the one who is impermanent will have to be given up entirely. So obviously there's another dimension, but it doesn't pay to describe that now, because first we have to have a good hold on the third dimension before, before we can see another one. So impermanence, constant change, moment to moment, is what we need to experience ourselves. And if we do, we will find that there's something very relieving about it. The burden of hanging on and making it solid against all odds is taken away. Because what we're trying to do is against the laws of nature and therefore not only very stressful but also impossible. We can't stay the way we are. We are changing from moment to moment. So if we start flowing with that, the burden of trying that one impossible endeavor is taken away. And one is far more accepting of one's own changes and the changes in others. As we see those changes within us, which may not be grandiose changes, just minute, we will see again and again that the laws of nature are stronger than our own wishes. It must not be an intellectual exercise, it must not be a belief system, it must be an experience, but it must be an understood experience. Wisdom comes from the understood experience. 
expressed with sayings and the understanding. That's where wisdom comes from. So if we have the understood experience of the nature of all that exists, starting with ourselves, we have taken an enormous step into the um, pathway which leads us out of all the crafts. The continuity that hides our impermanence is very often also just an idea. We are not continuous. We are constantly different. But also the understanding that arises from that, if we do flow with that, with that change, the understanding that arises is that the significance which we have given the experiences and the um, uh, manifestations that we are and that we see are quite arbitrary. The significance is strictly in our own mind. Nothing is as important as we think it is. And nothing is equally important as we think it is. It's all just the way we sort it up because we're trying to make it solid. Next, enough about this particular topic. If you have questions, this is the time for them. The solid perception? If you, because nobody thinks about it. If, you, if we think about it, we wouldn't perceive like that. Because we have the desire for sensual gratification, then we have no time for other things. And that's why we see it that way. Well, they do perceive the world differently from us, there's no doubt about it, otherwise they wouldn't act so differently. But nobody knows exactly how a baby perceives things. It's all theory. Yeah, it's all gray theory, nobody knows what it is. But, uh, the, the thing is, a desire for sensual gratification, we have no time to think about things. We've got to, do, we've got to gratify our desires. We've got time to look at the forest and see whether this is permanent or impermanent. Who's got time to look at the thoughts and see whether they're permanent or impermanent? Whoever gets even the idea to do that. Only when one has seen that the world is not as satisfactory as one hopes it would be. Then one starts. But what infants think and see and do, it's all theoretical. Yes. 
one sentence that we give. Yeah, but out of context. <laughs> out of out of context. <laughs> you you didn't have the whole context of it. Also, don't use it as a as a, a relief system because that's exactly where all that comes from. Oh, there must be something. So it must be called immortal soul. Oh, there must be something that must be called uh, unchanging chitta. Oh, there must be something. That's just exactly what it isn't. So I would suggest that you drop the whole matter and look at your own impermanence and then see what that tells you. That's much more useful. Okay? <laughs> that you could find something that's permanent. <laughs> yes? No, it's very, it's very dependent on, on wholesome living. It's, uh, you see that sila, the moral conduct, is a base. And when moral conduct breaks down, and breaks down means to a real extent, where one doesn't have that inner security anymore. Because one can break down any time. Uh, only the cementer is uh, released from that. Cementer does not break the five precepts anymore. But anyone that hasn't had that experience is always in danger. And when that moral conduct breaks down, the inner security is gone. And when the inner security is gone, that practice doesn't work. So it's very dependent, yes. Yeah, I usually do that at the end because people are totally put off by that at the beginning. If it's easier to do, put the beloved person on the same pillow so that you can direct the feeling of love to both of them. Now direct the same to everyone.
speak of your most beloved person again and direct the same love to the people that you live with that might be the nearest and dearest people. Think of your most beloved person again. Hold that person in your arms and let the same feeling that you have for that person flow out to all your friends. Think of your most beloved person again. Hold that person in your arms. And let the same feeling that you have for that person flow out to the people that you meet in everyday life. At work, neighbors, in shops, on the street. Wherever there are people to meet. Let this feeling that you have for the beloved person in your arms flow out to others regardless who they are.
Now let the feeling for your most beloved person reach out to a person whom you don't like. Now with whom you have difficulties or towards whom you are indifferent. Let the heart not have any obstacles. Let it flow. And now let the feeling for your most beloved person flow out to people near and far, those in this area, further afield, as far as the flow of your heart's content can reach. the feeling of love that you have for your most beloved person be available for many people. Now put your attention back on yourself. Put your most beloved person firmly into your heart so that the love for that person is always available in your heart and can fill you from head to toe with the warmth and care of that feeling and the joy and the purity.
may love flow from all beings' hearts.